he said, you know, parenthood's a funny thing. He said, as a parent, you don't get enough credit, but at the same time, somehow, you get way more credit than you deserve. And, you know, preparing for parenthood is, is a crazy thing, too. And I know me and Rachel have, have only been, uh, she's, she's over here now. <laughs> I know me and Rachel have only been parents for um, about five months now. But um, I remember that whole season and the craziness of it and the, and the chaos of it. And I swear, Rachel, she could be a certified midwife right now for all the research and studying and preparation she put in for when Fletcher was going to come. She's a rock star. Um, but, you know, nothing can fully prepare you for when that time comes. But we were still blessed to have community, a family, a great church and resources that were at least able to help us prepare for that time whenever Fletcher came. And I know that we cannot take that for granted because there are so many young women and young men in our community that don't know about any of those resources, who don't have a strong family support or have any biblical community to help them prepare. And that's exactly why we here at Hope Hickory, we want to partner with the Pregnancy Care Center of Catawba Valley, who does such an incredible job ministering to and supporting and resourcing these young women, these young families in our community. If I remember correctly, they even saw 41 salvations just this year through their ministry. Praise God for that. Amen. So we want to be able to support them in any way that we can. So on your way out today, as you go out through the exit, if you look to your right, you're going to see the impact table. We should have a picture of it here. And on this table, this is where um, you can give to help support and help launch the ministry of Hope Hickory. On there, you can find prayer, serve, or connect cards if you want to get more plugged in with the ministry. You'll also find little stacks of invite cards. Take the stack of those home with you. Invite everyone that you know. And also today, you're also going to find these baby bottles from the Pregnancy Care Center. And each one of these baby bottles represents a child and a child's life that will be loved and cared for and possibly even have their life saved through this ministry. So what we're asking everyone to do is to take home at least one of these bottles, every family in this church, and fill it up with any spare change you may have at home. Bring it back next Sunday, and we're going to deliver them back to the Pregnancy Care Center. And if you know that you're just visiting today, you know you're not going to be back next week or be back the rest of the month, you can still grab one of these bottles and write a check to the Pregnancy Care Center, put it inside, and we will get your gift and your donation back to them so we can do everything we can to help bless and support this ministry as they try to love on and care for these young families in our community, especially during the Christmas season. Now, speaking of the Christmas season and speaking of preparing for parenthood, it boggles my mind sometimes to think about what Mary must have gone through whenever she realized it was time for her to start preparing to be a parent. Now, this time of year, I love that song, Mary, Did You Know? And yes, I'm going to make Michaela and Jaleesa sing it at some point this month. But I love that song because it really makes me think, what really did Mary know during this time? And so for today, I want to look at a part of the Christmas story that I believe gets overlooked a lot this time of year because I think we get so caught up in the regularness of, and the tradition of Christmas. I think a lot of times we forget to pause and put ourselves in the shoes of the individuals these things were actually happening to. So I want to look at a portion here. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. And to set the scene here, Zechariah was a priest in Judah. 
Right? His wife, Elizabeth, was barren, so they weren't able to have any children. And they were, at this point in time in their lives, well beyond the years where they would be able to have a child. And one day, Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, visits Zechariah in the temple and tells him that he and his wife, in their old age, are going to miraculously conceive a son, and they're going to name him John. And Zechariah, as I would, says to Gabriel, how can I be sure this is actually going to happen? I'm an old man now. All right, my wife, she's also well along in years. He put that well, I think, Zechariah. And because he didn't believe, the angel tells him that he's not going to be able to speak again until the baby is born. So he goes mute. A few months later, the angel, the same angel, the angel Gabriel, makes another visit. But this time, he goes to Zechariah and Elizabeth's cousin, Mary. And tells her that she's also going to miraculously conceive and bear a son. And she is going to name him Jesus. Then Gabriel tells her she's not the only one. And that her cousin Elizabeth is also miraculously pregnant. So Mary decides to go spend some time processing all of this with her cousins. And during her stay, Mary writes this beautiful prophetic song of praise known by some as the Magnificat. Found in Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 46. And it reads, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her three months and then returned to her home. Will you guys pray with me one more time and we'll dig into this a little bit further. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these moments that we share as a community gathered around your word. I pray that in these moments, all the stress and the distractions of life would cease as we focus on you and your goodness and your glory and your love. I thank you that we don't have to ask you to fill this place because we know by the power of the Holy Spirit you're already here. So I pray that you would make us more aware of your presence in these moments. I pray that you would allow our minds to be transported into this time. Show us what was really going on at this time of your birth so that we can know you a little bit deeper and a little bit better. Because we know if we know Jesus more, we'll never be the same. Thank you for all that you are and all we get to be in you. Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. Now, I'm a big sports guy. I don't, think, I don't know if anyone's ever known that about me or not, but, but I am. And, you know, I don't think I ever realized how incredibly blessed I was to begin my career in ministry with guys like Skip and Jeff and even Austin Miller over the past few years, having Kevin as an intern, all who were also sports guys that I could really talk sports with until it came time for me to leave the nest, Shelby, and we were here in Hickory. We were more established here. I was spending a lot of time at other churches and trainings and uh, church planning conferences and cohorts and pastor conferences and everything like that. And I began to realize how rare it was for other guys in ministry to actually be sports guys. You know, that's my go-to small talk, okay? And these, there's a lot of these other guys that would try, but, you know, it just wasn't it. 
It wasn't you, Skip. <laughs> it's just, it, it wasn't. And, and so I'd have to pivot the conversations. And, and you know, on top of that, too, I was having a really hard time finding other guys that really thought about and saw ministry in church the same way that I did. Which, I mean, made sense. I'm a natural Yankee trying to minister down here in the South. You know, I come from ascending church that was once referred to by the state convention as a bull in a china shop because my lead pastors actually got things done, didn't sit around and talk about it, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> but so with these different backgrounds and these different wirings, it makes sense that we'd have different perspectives. But if I'm going to be honest with you, I was starting to feel really lonely. You know, it was starting to take a toll. I felt like there was no one who was speaking the same language that I was, and it was starting to take a toll on me. And Rachel, she was really feeling it too. And then I remember one time uh, we were at another church planner gathering uh, in Raleigh. Me and Rachel were down. There was a small roundtable event, about 25, 30 people there. And I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but I remember uh, at one point thinking, ah, I don't know about that. And then two tables down, there was a young Latino pastor who raised his hand, and then he voiced the same exact thing that I had been thinking. Now, I wasn't going to say it out loud. I was going to be a team player, but Pastor Josue, he was going to be the rebel. <laughs> and so I think, I might like this guy. So uh, we had a break. I went over. I started talking to him, and I was blown away how similarly we thought about things, and we thought about ministry, and we thought about church. And it was crazy how similar our stories were. You know, he was coming out of Hickory. I was going into Hickory, both young church planners. You know, we come from similar sending churches. We both going to have baby boys during this process, our firstborn sons. You know, was, and to top all of it off, the very next morning, we get together for a session. The first thing he says to me is, hey, bro, you catch that Lakers-Warriors game last night? <laughs> Heck, yeah, I said I'm way too late watching that Lakers-Warriors game last night. We start talking NBA. We start talking NFL. I'm like, this is going to be my boy for a really long time. You know, it's just so refreshing and so relieving whenever you go through a season of your life wherever you feel you're like you're all alone. You feel like you're on an island by yourself, and then God finally brings someone else along who's speaking the same language that you are to let you know you're not the only one. Because I'm sure most of you know, and most of you probably had those times and seasons of your life where you can be surrounded by people, but yet still feel like you're all by yourself. But I think if we're open to it, God intentionally brings people into our lives that have an understanding of what we're going through, what we will go through, or what we've been through because they've had similar experiences as well. Which is also why, side note, that's why the most powerful tool in your arsenal for evangelism is your story. Because you never know who's going to be able to relate and you never know who's going to be able to impact. It's funny because in this day and age, we're so desperate to have unique stories. Everyone wants to have a unique story that no one else has heard before. So we exaggerate or we fabricate or we twist it a little bit to make it seem a little more interesting than it actually is. So we'll get a little more attention. But it's not really the unique stories that make an impact in people's lives. It's relatable stories that truly influence people. The unique stories, they're different, they're fun, they're entertaining, but the stories that will truly make a difference and impact lives are the ones that people hear and say, hey, me too. They're speaking my language. I'm not the only one. But so often we're hesitant to genuinely tell our stories because we get caught up in the lie of thinking, well, no one's going to understand me. If I really say that out loud, how are people going to look at me? 
If people really knew my story, would anyone ever see me the same way again? Now, if anyone had good reason to feel that way, it was Mary. Here we have a young teenage girl, anywhere from the age range of 13 to 17 years old, which was not uncommon in that day and age for that to be the age range in which women began to marry and have children. Now, she was not technically married at this point. She was what the Bible refers to as betrothed, which is similar to our engagement process, but it was still legally binding. You still had to get an official divorce to break this betrothal off. And during this betrothal period, it was actually a 12-month period and process in which the soon-to-be husband and wife, they wouldn't really see each other that much, if at all, because the husband, he would be off working to build their house, most commonly in addition onto his family's house, and he'd also be putting in a lot of extra hours at work to make sure they would be financially supported for whenever they were officially married. And also one of the reasons why they wouldn't, they would intentionally not see each other that much unless they were under strict supervision is because they wanted to be sure that the husband and wife would not sleep together before marriage and they would go into their wedding night pure. And it's during this stage and this season of her life that the angel Gabriel visits Mary and tells her that in her virginity, she's going to conceive and bear a son. Now, if I'm Mary, I'm thinking, who in the world is going to believe that? What's she supposed to tell mom and dad? Oh, no, mom and dad, it's not what you think. Yeah, I'm still a virgin. God just put the unborn Messiah in my belly to save the world from their sins. They're probably not going to buy that one. <laughs> you know, what's, what's Joseph, her fiancé, going to think? There's no way he's going to think that she hadn't been unfaithful in some way. The community is going to ostracize her. She's going to be seen as an adulteress, and in that day and age, she could actually be executed for that. But at the very least, she would be an object of shame for her and her family for the rest of her life. Why? Because no one is going to believe her. No one is going to understand. And God had to know exactly what Mary would be thinking and feeling. So the angel tells her in Luke 1, 36 and 37, says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, she's also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Who else could relate to a miraculous pregnancy? Well, her cousin Lizzie over in Judah, who had an angel tell her she was also going to miraculously bear a son, even though she was way too old to have one. Who else is going to believe the angel Gabriel came to visit her? Well, that same exact angel visited Elizabeth's husband. Who's going to believe that the Messiah is actually coming and through her? Elizabeth, who was told that her son was coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. So what does Mary do? It says in verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste, wasn't wasting any time, into the hill country to a town of Judah. This was about a 70-mile journey for her. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary's got to be thinking, if anyone's going to understand what I'm going through or what I'm about to go through, it's Elizabeth. So I'm going to spend some time with her. But still, she's got to be thinking how to approach the subject, right? Because you know how prideful and arrogant it sounds to say that your seemingly illegitimate child is actually the promised Messiah and Savior of the world? You can't just come out and say that. But right as she says hello, 
Verse 41 says, And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Man, what kind of relief did that have to be for Mary in that moment? Spending all of this time trying to figure out how to best explain with words what's happening to her, and now she doesn't even have to because the Holy Spirit knew exactly what type of encouragement Mary needed in that moment. You know, sometimes we'll think, oh, if I have an angel come to me and tell me exactly what I need to know, I'd be good to, no, you wouldn't. Mary had that, and it still wasn't enough. What Mary needed was a shoulder to lean on. Someone close to her that could speak the same language she was, that could actually understand what she had going on, that she could relate to and love on her. Man, I want to be a little bit more like Elizabeth. I want to be someone who gets so filled with the Holy Spirit that I can encourage someone at the exact time that they need it. It makes me think of my brother Matt. Uh, he's, he's not with us today. He's uh, over uh, serving with the National Guard this weekend. And, but his wife Miriam is in the babies. And um, if you don't know them, they have four children. Louisa just turned one recently, and their oldest boy is five. (laughs) They have two twin girls that are three years old. So needless to say, they did not plan on having number four this quickly. They actually didn't plan on having number three. She just came along with number two. So surprise there. But (laughs) I remember my brother telling me that whenever they realized that they they might be pregnant with Louisa, he got up in a panic, and he ran to the store to grab a pregnancy test. And whenever he went to check out, the lady at the cash register probably could have seen some of the panic in his face. And she just stopped him and said, don't you worry, son. We don't make babies. God does. And what kind of encouragement was that to my brother in that moment? That's the type of Christian I want to be. I want to be so in tune with the Holy Spirit and so familiar with his word that I can be used to say the right thing at the right time that allows God to bring the right encouragement into someone's life right when they need it, just like that lady did for my brother and just like Elizabeth was doing for Mary. I don't want to be someone that gets so caught up in what I'm going through and comparing my situation to others. I just want the Holy Spirit to fill me at the right time in such a way that I can help confirm what God is doing in and through someone's life that encourages them and fires them up about living for God. And Mary, she gets fired up. And you know what Mary didn't do whenever encouraged by Elizabeth? She didn't say, no, you. When, when Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, Mary doesn't go, oh, who, little old me? Oh, that's so sweet. Bless your heart. No, no, no. You're the blessed one, sweetie. We don't see any of that in Mary because Mary shows true humility. In verse 46, it says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, some might say, well, that's not very humble, Mary. Saying all generations will call you blessed. That's not very ladylike. But I actually think it was the most humble response she possibly could have had. Because... True humility is accepting and praising. Accepting what God has done and praising him for it. Now, me and Eric, we were talking the other week in our community group, and the question came up, um, was John the disciple, was he full of himself? Because he referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I would argue no. 
I would argue he was actually one of the more humble of disciples because he decided to accept what God said about him and define himself by it. God tells us that we are loved. He tells us in his word that we are holy, righteous, and redeemed, made new children of God. And it can only be prideful if we think we had anything to do with it. True humility, I believe, is accepting what God says about you with the realization there is nothing you could have ever done to earn it or to make up for it. And that's why we praise him. Because it's not about me or who I am. It's about who he is and what he's done. Now Mary, she at no point thought she deserved to be the mother of the Messiah. When she says that God looked on her humble estate, she's not saying God saw how humble I was and he chose me because of my humility and my qualities. No, she's saying I'm just a small town girl from a working class village out in the middle of nowhere. Even when the disciples would go on to say, does anything good come from Nazareth? That was Mary's hometown. Mary's saying I couldn't have more humble beginnings, yet God chose to use me. So therefore my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Everyone's going to call me blessed. Why? For he who is mighty has done great things for me. It has nothing to do with me or what I think I deserve. It has everything to do with his grace and his mercy. So I'm going to accept it. I'm going to praise him for it. And that is true humility. You know, C.S. Lewis, he once famously said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And you see, what Mary understood is that we, ourselves, we are never the focal point of any blessing that God brings into our lives. That's why this theology of, oh, I'm a child of God, so I deserve this or I deserve that or I'm claiming this raise in the name of Jesus because I tithe, I'm a Christian, I deserve it. That type of theology is dangerous, manipulative, and confusing, because that theology makes everything about you and not God. Me? I don't deserve any blessing from God. But yet he still chooses to bless me and show me grace and show me mercy and show me favor. And I don't have time to waste thinking about whatever I think I deserve when I need to spend that time just appreciating and being in awe of who he is and the fact that he would ever choose to bless me with anything in the first place. You know, that word blessed that Mary uses, it can also be translated to be pronounced fortunate. So this verse actually could read, from now on all generations will pronounce me fortunate. Now when Mary first gets this news, you think she was thinking about how fortunate she was. I doubt it. She's probably thinking how her entire life and her plan is getting flipped upside down on its head. She's probably thinking about how the world is going to see her and how her fiancé is probably going to leave her. The angel has to tell her to not be afraid. Why? Because this entire situation is terrifying. But this is what praise can do. Praise can turn a burden to a blessing. I love, to, I love to quote my, my good friend Jake Delaney. He's one of the basketball coaches at Gardner-Webb University. And uh, a while back, we were talking. I was checking in on him, how he and his family were doing in the midst of his mom's cancer diagnosis, who has since gone on to be with the Lord. But whenever we were talking about that, he gave me the greatest definition of the word blessing I've ever heard in my life. He said, a blessing is anything the Lord allows me to go through that causes me to know him more. And now Mary... With that type of definition, she can confidently say that she's blessed. Not because of who she is or what she can do, but because she's going to know the Savior on a deeper, more personal level than anyone else on the planet ever will. Think about it. She's going to be right there when his life begins. 
She's going to watch him grow up. She's going to have a front row seat his entire life in ministry. She's going to be right there at his feet when they put him on the cross, and she's going to be right there whenever he raises from the grave. But what praise was able to help Mary put into perspective before she ever experiences any of that was realizing that the greatest inconvenient and confusing situation of her life was actually going to be the greatest blessing of her life because she'd get to know him more. And she was not the focal point of that blessing. Jesus, he knits that in the bud. In uh, Luke chapter 11, Jesus is teaching one day, and a lady calls out from the back and said, Blessed is your mother, the fruit of your womb from which you came. And Jesus says, yeah, but even more blessed are those who hear the word and God and do it. Yeah. Mary's not the focal point here. She's awesome. We love her. But there's no part of Scripture that ever makes Mary the focal point of any adoration or worship. There's no part of Scripture that ever says that Mary hears or receives any prayers. And Mary wasn't blessed because of what she did or what she was going to do. Elizabeth tells her, blessed is she who what? Conceived? Blessed is she who was so humble? Blessed is she who was about to give birth? No. Blessed is she who simply believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the, word, from the Lord. That word believe can also be translated to place confidence in. Mary is blessed. She's happy. She's fortunate because she placed her, confident, her confidence in her God and in his word. Which brings me to the last point today, which is consistent praise breeds confidence in God. Consistent praise breeds confidence in God. Charles Spurgeon, he once said that prayer and praise are the oars by which we row our boats into the deep waters of the knowledge of God. And it is apparent from Mary's prayer and her praise that Mary knows her God. If we're going to paraphrase the song that we read at the beginning, it would read something like this. She knows that he is Lord and he's Savior. She knows that he is mighty and holy. He's merciful, deserving of our awe and our wonder. She says there's no room for pride compared to a God who's so strong, powerful, and wise. She says he takes care of the needy and humbles the entitled. He helps or he holds fast to his people. He's trustworthy, faithful, and consistent now and for forever. And the fact that this God came to save me, well, that should leave me flabbergasted every single day. I tell you, I take him for granted whenever I get lazy with my praise. Now, I know I'm a pastor, but I still have those Sundays and those seasons, too, where I get caught up just going through the motions. And I take for granted the worship experience and the powerful lyrics and the opportunity to praise him and make his name great corporately with my church family. The opportunity to truly magnify him with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength. And whenever I get lazy with my praise, you know, it's incredible how quickly I become entitled thinking about all the things I deserve or thinking about all the things that I think God should be doing for me whenever I don't deserve a second of his time. Now, Mary's prayer is very reminiscent of Hannah's prayer that Pastor Skip referenced earlier when she had Samuel 1 Samuel 2. And part of the prayer says this, and it says, There's none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. She's also saying, like Mary said, there is absolutely no room for pride and arrogance and entitlement whenever we praise the almighty, all-knowing, ever-present God of the ages. And you know what? I add absolutely no value to him. 
all of my prayer, all of my praise. It doesn't make him any holy, any more perfect, or any more complete than he already is on his own. There is nothing I can do to ever make him any greater than he already is. But yet, even when I still cared more about my sin than I did him, he still loved me and pursued me and wanted to save my soul. And whenever I came to the realization that I needed a Savior, there was nothing I could do to make myself better, he was right there waiting, arms open wide. And I don't want to lose the joy of that. I don't want to lose the wonder of that. Like David, I need to regularly pray that God would restore to me the joy of his salvation. And I hope, and I pray, Hope Hickory, that's exactly what the Christmas season is for us. A time where the joy of our salvation is restored to us. Where we wouldn't just remember a cute manger, but we would realize the magnitude of the cross. And accept his gift and praise him like crazy for it. I'm going to let Jaleesa and Michaela can go ahead and come back up. They're going to close us out with another time of worship before we dismiss. But, but first, man, when I think about it, I wish I could have felt the anticipation around these two miraculous pregnancies. You know, for those of you who have had children, you remember, like, the anticipation of the coming child. What must it have felt like for those three months with, when Mary and Elizabeth were together? What did the energy in the house feel like? No, they didn't know exactly what God was going to do or how he was going to bring salvation to Israel, but they knew that he was about to do something completely unprecedented. They knew this was going to be the most important and significant birth in all of human history. And if they didn't take the time to praise together, you know, Mary, she probably could have got caught up just feeling the burden of the inconvenience rather than the blessing of the opportunity to be a part of the story of God. Consistent praise breeds confidence in God. And that praise can turn any burden into a blessing by causing us to know him more. Now, whenever it came time for Elizabeth to deliver the baby, Mary, she headed back to Nazareth, probably before all the extended family got there so she wouldn't be a distraction. And then eight days after the baby was born, they took, they took the child to the temple. And this is typically whenever they would give the child his name. And everybody's so thrown off whenever Elizabeth says that she wants to name the baby John. Because it was customary. So what everybody did is they, they always named the firstborn son after their father or at least another relative. But there was no one in their entire family history that was ever named John. It makes me think of my father-in-law who's with us today. You know, his, uh, his great, 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 I don't know how many great-grandfathers was Frederick Robert, royalty in, in Norway. They say king, but I don't know if I believe that. <laughs> anyway, he goes to this royal family, and the tradition of that family was that every firstborn son would get the same name, but in reverse. So they had Frederick Robert, had Robert Frederick, then Frederick Robert, had Robert Frederick, Frederick Robert, Robert Frederick, going all the way down to my father-in-law, whose name is Brian. <laughs> Even his dad, Robert Frederick. Swung and missed there, Carol. <laughs> you know, but that's what this felt like to, to everyone here. <laughs> she liked it. I'm going to pay for that one later. But it's going to be a fun family lunch today. 
So everyone's so confused. They start to argue with Elizabeth. They try to say Zachariah, who still can't speak at this time, try to get her to talk some sense into his wife. But then he grabs a tablet and he writes down his name is John. And then in verse 63, it says, They all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing, spoke praising God. Skip down to verse 67. It says, His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 76 says, And you, child, and you, John, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Isn't that beautiful? The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't it amazing? Even the birth of John wasn't about the birth of John. It was about preparing the way for the sunrise to visit us from on high. Because whenever we were lost in darkness and finally realized that this world had nothing to offer us but death and disappointment, God allows his light to shine into our lives to guide us and to give us hope and to give us peace. All because he sent that baby boy into the world through Mary so that the sin and the selfishness that separated us from him could be bridged by a cross. He paid the price for our mishaps. He paved the way to our peace. And all it takes is believing and accepting the free gift of salvation and relationship that he offers. He offers us eternal life for the future. He offers us peace and hope in the midst of the chaotic world we live in right now. It has nothing to do with who we are, what we've done. It's all because of his grace and his mercy that we can be called blessed because we get to know him for all of eternity. All we got to do is accept it and praise him for it. So that's exactly what we're going to end the service today by doing. You guys can go ahead and stand to your feet because whenever we sing these lyrics that we've already, we're all familiar with now because we've already sung them earlier in the service. But as we sing these lyrics, remember what God has done for you. There's nothing you ever did to deserve it. There's nothing you could ever do to earn it. But God put skin and bone on. He came to this planet, allowed himself to die the death that we deserved so that we could have a relationship with him. Let's accept that truth. Let's believe him and let's praise him for it.